Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic Answering the Attacks on Benedict XVI. This May 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. All of you would be okay to some extent about with what is going on. You've heard it in the media in recent weeks, recent months, concerning allegations directed towards or against Pope Benedict XVI as somehow being either weak or implicated or approving the activities, even approving the activities of pedophile priests or other priests involved in sexual abuse cases. Now, for us as Catholics, this is very hurtful. It's very worrying. We here at Lumen Verum and um, our friends that have come to these talks over the years were generally part of that crowd that supports the Pope and believes that Pope Benedict in particular is doing a wonderful job and we want to see Pope Benedict live many years longer and hold on to the papacy for many more years to come. So attacks like this, which call upon Pope Benedict to either resign or petitions that are out there to the bishops of the world demanding that he be removed, or calls for Pope Benedict to be arrested and put on trial for crimes against humanity is something that greatly, that or should greatly concern us. When I come across these stories, and you tap into international websites like the London Times, etc., you do see how often these stories come up. You have to read them. They are worrying at first, but then we can see what's really behind this and the real level of um, professionalism or scholarship or in-depth journalism that's lacking in these attacks. <coughs> I'm going to be looking at multiple issues here. This is a multi-dimensional topic. The attacks are not coming just from the outside, enemies of Catholicism, enemies of the Catholic Church. The attacks are also coming from inside the church. Disaffected Catholics, dissenting Catholics, Catholics that have been on an anti-papal or anti-Humani Vitae bandwagon for decades and they want to jump on the back of this bandwagon in an attempt to attack the papacy, attack hierarchy because they're not happy with what the Pope or the hierarchy is doing at the moment in areas that they want to see changed. Anyway, by way of introduction, the level of vitriol being directed at Pope Benedict by the mainstream media recently has been extraordinary. And this is coming from um, the United States, Germany, Britain in particular, and it's been disseminated and repeated throughout mostly, well, Ireland as well, the English-speaking world and other parts of Europe. Its primary, its primary drive, um, the root cause of it, when you look at the United States, are legal actions that are currently being brought before the courts in various states. Now, I don't want to make a comment on the worthwhileness or otherwise of these legal actions. I want to get something clear here from the very beginning. 
I'll be making no apology for priests that have been uh, charged with or allegations brought against involving sexual abuse. But in no way, shape or form am I going to be here trying to make excuses for anyone's evil behaviour. And nor should we. We can look for causes as to why we have pedophile priests or priests engaged, or religious as well, engaged in sexual abuse. We can search for causes, but I'm not here tonight going to be making excuses for anyone. My general thesis is that the various attacks against Pope Benedict are unjust and there's a hidden agenda behind them. I'm not worried now in this talk about any other priest or bishop or religious as such. But what I see here is a combination of hatred of the Catholic Church and the desire by greedy lawyers in the United States to gain as much money as possible in legal actions on behalf of clients who have a legitimate case, for the most part. Okay. There is a need here by American lawyers to implicate the Vatican in sexual abuse scandals, directly implicate. The reason why, because the way the Catholic Church is structured, each diocese, each archdiocese is a separate corporation. And when you get priests, religious, etc., involved in the sin of sexual abuse, and they've been caught, and dogged, and arrested, and charged, etc., and up before the courts, as they deserve to be, people are seeking compensation. Sometimes the access to compensation is inhibited or blocked because dioceses have gone bankrupt. One example is Los Angeles. $600 million in legal settlements to the victims of sexual abuse. It's gone bankrupt. And these people are seeking uh, other sources. Okay, I might have been a bit harsh in my earlier comment, but these people are seeking other sources uh, for compensation. The lawyers I'm accusing of greed here because they're the ones that often are in, in it for a percentage take. And if we can somehow show that really the Catholic Church is a corporation and the Pope is the CEO, so to speak, that, and the bishops are really employees of the Vatican and that they are implementing Vatican policy to cover up, to move priests here and there, and that this policy was the the primary cause of why sexual abuse was perpetuated year in and year out for decades and the victims were multiplied, then we can get directly at the Pope and the wealth of the Vatican in Vatican City for our compensation claims. I'm sure there are innocent victims who need desperately compensation and in their minds this is one way to get it. But what we have here with the media is that scandal sells and we really want to get at the Catholic Church. Because despite the the sexual scandals of a really very small percentage of Catholic clergy, the Catholic Church preaches a sexual morality that we hate. This is the media speaking. Sexual revolution is running rampant throughout the entire world. 
And we don't want any obstacles in its path. You see it every day. You see it in the media last night and today. The minister who resigned yesterday, his grievous sin was that he travelled to this place of ill repute in a government car. If he walked there, there would have been no problem from a professional political point of view to lead a double life, to betray your wife and your children by committing adultery in a homosexual relationship. That's fine. That's private. Leave him alone. What the sin was, was he went in a government car. Now that's a fruit of the mentality of the sexual revolution becoming all pervasive and trying to form our mentalities that there's no such thing anymore as sexual sin. But the Catholic Church is still out there saying there is divorce and remarriage, contraceptive use, uh, fornication, adultery, homosexual and lesbian acts, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. The Catholic Church is out there as an annoying obstacle and we must crush its authority and its credibility in the mind of public opinion throughout the world. That is what I believe is what's generally driving this assault against Pope Benedict. I have no problem with the media or anyone else coming out and exposing and hauling over the coals any priest, religious or bishop who's been guilty of a sexual abuse scam. I have no problem with that. In fact, that might force us as a Catholic church throughout the entire world to get our act together once and for all in dealing with this crisis at a, at a universal and comprehensive level. This problem has escalated of sexual abuse. There's always been sexual abuse in the church over the whole history of 2,000 years of Christianity. But there's no doubt that there's been an explosion of it in the post-conciliar era. I'm not saying that the Second Vatican Council was responsible. By no means. No means. Don't get me wrong. But we live in a time of crisis in the church. A crisis that's been marked by a collapse of conviction and a collapse in discipline in the church. A collapse in the self-discipline. Old-fashioned things that we used to speak about custody of the senses, of the eyes, of the ears, of the, of the lips. We've dropped our guard to a large extent. Weak bishops, cowardice, an excessive confidence in the ability of psychotherapy to fix these issues, as if it's psychotherapy alone can do it. What about grace? as the cure for it. These things have been forgotten to a large extent in, in, in large areas throughout the world in the church. I believe that this has been a background cause for a lot of the explosion in recent decades, particularly in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Statistics are telling us that it is actually getting better, particularly in the United States. The number of cases has dropped off to an insignificant number relatively. Every one is significant. I'm talking relatively here, compared to what we heard in 2002 and what's come out in Ireland this year. The number of sexual abuse cases being reported in Australia and in the United States, for example, is beginning to peter out. Hopefully, 
That's a sign that we're on the road of recovery. We need, though, to be purged of the filth. And this is what Pope Benedict has described. The filth in the church that is a horrendous scandal. You go to go back to the gospel where Christ talks about the how sadly the scandal of the young is in a sense he called it he used the word it's, it needs must come it's like it's almost inevitable that there'll be scandal but woe to the person who's guilty of this scandal woe to those priests religious bishops who are guilty of scandal in, in corrupting uh, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, the young through these heinous acts. So basically, for the, from the church's point of view, the sexual abuse crisis is one of fidelity. If fidelity was promoted, faithfulness, faithfulness to the gospel, to church teaching, then would have far less of this abuse. I get onto the Catholic blogs, particularly Catholic news service. I get under a pseudonym most of the time. And I'm out there repeating, in, the, in opposition to the, in the centres that are in the church who are using this crisis to attack the Pope and hierarchy per se, I'm asking the question of the dissenters, how many of these priests, religious, etc., guilty of sexual abuse, were faithful adherents and supporters of Pope Paul VI, Humano Vitae, 1968, which condemned artificial contraception as a sin. My thesis is that the vast majority of abusers were people who were not faithful to the Church's teaching in sexual ethics. There were some who certainly claimed that they were, they're notorious. Cardinal Archbishop in Austria, uh, Groer, I think that's how you pronounce his name, G-R-O-E-R. And of course the famous head of the Legionaries of Christ, Father Marcel Marcial. They had ostensibly, externally exhibited fidelity to Rome and church teaching, while unfortunately they led secret lives which were abhorrent, and ultimately they were removed. Sadly, in one case, far too late. Let's put this sexual and physical abuse of children in some perspective. It is not just a Catholic crisis. It's certainly just not an American Catholic crisis, but it's not just a Catholic crisis. It is a worldwide plague that is a horrendous fruit of the sexual revolution that is enveloping the world. Now, the commentator George Weigel, who's very well known to Catholics uh, for his social commentary in the United States, wrote an article March 29, 2010, entitled The Scoundrel Times. Now, this is a counterattack against the New York Times. He said, in the United States alone, just to get a comprehensive understanding of the magnitude of sexual abuse in all levels and fields of society, there are reportedly some 39 million victims of childhood sexual abuse in the United States today, living today. Up to 60% were abused by family members, blood relatives, including stepfathers or living boyfriends, 
of the child's mother. So, do we get ask ourselves the question when we watch television or read anything written in the media, do we get peppered day and night with stories of sexual abuse committed by fathers, stepfathers, live-in boyfriends? No. The huge focus is on the Catholic Church. Now, maybe you can say, well, of course... You know, we have higher standards. Yes, we do. And, and you should be living up to those higher standards. Yes, we should. But still, it's a, it's a grossly disproportionate focus on the Catholic Church. Last year alone, New South Wales, there were 140 teachers in state schools who were dismissed from their positions because of some form of sexual abuse or activity with students. 140. How many Catholic catechists? Zero. How many Catholic priests last year? Um, okay, at most, going, re-digging scandals, for example, like at Bathurst, you know, half a dozen, maybe ten. But that's over decades. Not in one year. But you don't get the same proportion of media focus of sexual scandals committed by those in the secular sphere, outside of the church. According to other recent studies, 2% of sexual abuse offenders were Catholic priests. That's 2% too many. But it's only 2%. A phenomenon that spiked between the mid-60s and the mid-1980s, but seems to have virtually disappeared. Last year in the United States, in 2009, and this is formal reporting. By the way, in the United States, only the Catholic Church has now a formal re- reporting process and releases statistics every year on this. Only the Catholic Church does it 100% in, in all cases. And that's a fruit of what happened in 2002. 2002 was a hellish year for this, particularly in the Boston Archdiocese. There were rings of pedophiles involving up to 90 priests in that archdiocese alone. But last year, out of 65 million Catholics in the United States, there were only six credible cases of clerical sexual abuse which were formally reported. That's six too many, again. But it's, thankfully, it seems to be diminishing. Why the attacks? I've already gone into that, just to repeat. The crisis of sexual abuse and episcopal misgovernment has been seized upon by the church's enemies to cripple it, morally and financially, and to cripple its leaders. Even contributors to Catholic website, who are dissenting Catholics, have fallen into this trap. They're saying, they're echoing what the secular world is saying. The Catholic Church, because of your sexual sins, now shut up about sex. Don't talk about it at all. Don't preach to us about what's right and wrong about sex. Because of your sins, keep quiet. Now, of course, when we're guilty of our own sins, it certainly puts a spoke in the wheel in our credibility. How can we clearly preach against the sexual revolution if we're guilty of sexual sin ourselves. It is a real problem. But the point is, the church has to continue to teach the gospel and the truth about human sexuality 
and we can't listen to the external or internal dissenting voices that are trying to muffle those Catholics who are in the vast majority in leadership positions who are doing the right thing in this area. And this is why they need to muffle Benedict, muffle the Pope, and you have really, you know, knocked the Catholic Church for six. And that's what they want to do. The subtext of this is particularly with dissenters, and we saw this in the United States in 2002, and we see it now in Australia and elsewhere. The subtext is a liberal leftist dissenting Catholic assault against hierarchy because they want to introduce the congregationalist form of government. That is, let's get rid of the hierarchical pyramid, let's get rid of the structure of Pope, Archbishops, Bishops, Priests. That's been in place for 2,000 years with the Apostles and their success. Let's get rid of that and let's have the lay people in charge. And the definition of lay people, of course, read themselves. The dissenters want to be in charge. Who can help when you read, and I'm not even going to call him father, when you read Hans Kung's letter to the, all the bishops of the world, what he's, he's got on the bandwagon here to continue his rev, decades-old revolt. Then he basically wants... As a consequence of this crisis, let's get the bishops of the world to remove Pope Benedict and let's now move to a church that's inclusive of women in the priesthood, of gays and le- gay and lesbian relationships, you know, open to all. Then now this is their sinister side to it. Let's be truly Catholic. Let's, in, let's invite everyone. No rules, no regulations whatsoever. And this is the subtext here of the liberal dissenting Catholic. Now, in the last few months, we've had three specific cases that have been raised in the media, which, have been, which the media have used in an attempt to implicate Pope Benedict as somehow being um, at least negligent, if not complicit, when it comes to sexual abuse. But by the way, before I look at these three cases specifically, I was involved in teaching for many years. Starting in 1990, and I finished high school teaching at the end of 2005. It's a 16-year period. I saw vast changes happen just in that time, around the middle, 1997-98, regarding child protection. In other words, because of cases involving school teachers in whatever system where there was abuse of children physically, psychologically, sexually. There was felt a need to get our act together in the field of education. And it started in around 1998. Before then, there was abuses going on. They weren't being, they weren't being handled properly. There was a natural tendency not to show your dirty laundry in public and deal with issues hush-hush and move people from place to place. That was happening anywhere and everywhere. Hey, not just in the Catholic Church. And And the education system here in Australia had to get up to speed. The Catholic Church had to go through the same process. There were bishops who, of course, not bad people who approved of sexual abuse, by no means, but engaged in dealing with cases quietly 
and not airing it out in public and moving the offender hopefully to a safer place where they wouldn't reoffend, thinking that was the right, that was the normal practice and that was the right thing to do. In hindsight, we're wiser. In hindsight, we really we realise it failed. In hindsight, we say we wish we didn't do it that way. But it wasn't just the Catholic Church that was doing it that way. Every denomination in the United States and elsewhere was doing the same thing. Every educational system, private, religious, secular, state, was doing the same thing. They've all had to catch up, get up to speed in getting their processes, protocols, and reporting procedures and child protection procedures in place. And it took years to change the culture in all these realms. Not just in the Catholic Church. The first case is what's called the Father Peter Hulleman case, or originally the Father H case. <clears throat> the New York Times on Friday, March the 12th, brought out this explosive headline, Abuse Scandal in Germany Edges Closer to Pope. I read that. When you, read, when you see something like that, you say, mm, what's going on? And you read it. The article disclosed that in 1980, the Archbishop of Munich and Friesling, Friesling agreed to house a priest of the Diocese of Essen while he underwent therapy after he was accused of molesting boys. Now, to sum it up, Ratzinger was Archbishop of Munich at the time. He agreed to have a, a priest known to have committed sexual abuse of a minor from the Diocese of Essen, to come into his diocese, to what? To receive therapy, treatment, to try and be cured or healed of this okay, problem. Later on, that priest was transferred back to his diocese by the Vicar General of Munich Friesian. The, the Munich Diocese is a huge diocese. They've got over a thousand priests. Not like in a normal diocese, you might have anywhere between a dozen to three or four hundred. Munich is a massive archdiocese. And then that priest back at, thought to have been treated well and things were okay and it was safe again, recommitted offence. So basically they're saying, well, Pope Benedict is at fault here when he was Cardinal, when he was Archbishop of Munich. Okay. Well, we can, the most, Ratzinger, the then Cardinal Ratzinger, can be guilty of is perhaps naivety. There's no way, shape or form that he approved the actions of this person. He received the person in normal Christian charity. This person is, has got an illness, okay? He's committed criminal acts, but it's due to a perversion and illness, and he received him with the intention of trying to treat a problem. Not to hide a problem and not to allow that problem to continue. And when you look at the records, it was the Vicar General who had him transferred back to his other diocese. The Pope is not responsible, uh, in no way can be accused of maliciously wanting to perpetuate a problem. The most naivety thinking that what we've done is um, the best practice, and he's not... He's not even aware of what that priest is doing back home in his, in his home diocese. You can't be blaming Cardinal Ratzinger or now Pope Benedict for the sins committed against 
by this priest back in his home diocese decades later. Yes, in hindsight we, we say, well, it could have been handled better. And Pope Benedict would be saying, yes, in hindsight we could have handled it better. But there's no um, malicious intent here, as I said earlier. We're wise, all of us, after the event. And the media is trying to tell us what was really on the mind of the then Archbishop of Munich when you know, he allowed this person into his diocese. And despite what you hear in the media, there was nothing in any church law, canon, etc., that would stop this victim and his parents to go to the police and have the offender char- arrested and charged. Okay. There's nothing to stop that. At the time, even... And look, I personally know victims of pedophilia. I don't tell you their names. I have no right to. Some victims want to keep it private. Some parents want to keep it private. And they trusted the church to handle it well in, in their internal processes. Okay? And that's still the case of some people. I know a person privately, who was victimised by a pedophile. And that person who was the victim has never revealed that name to the general public. Doesn't want to. In fact, uh, when he revealed it to me, he still had some association with that pedophile. Now what I'm saying here is that that's not best practice, keep it secret. But some people at the time thought, even victims thought, the right thing to do was to keep it secret. We don't necessarily have to take it to the police. The Father Lawrence Murphy case is the next one that was launched a few days later by the New York Times again. Now this one, this case was presented as as following. There was a priest named Father Lawrence Murphy who was guilty of the most shocking sexual abuse you could imagine. Abusing over a number of years, many years, up to 200 deaf children, deaf boys. And this was reported and the priest, this was reported in the 70s, and the Archdiocese of Milwaukee began the process, or there were two dioceses here, but eventually fell from high primary. There was a diocese of Superior next door to the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. They were both involved in this case. This priest was, a process was begun against this priest to have this priest defrocked. Okay, that is, sacked from the priesthood. <laughs> The pre- went on, the police initially got reports in the 70s and investigated the case. The police found not, not sufficient evidence to charge the man and proceed with the case. So the police dropped it. Not the church. The police dropped the case. What happened? Eventually, over the years, the evidence built up against this guy. So the Archbishop of Milwaukee the infamous Rembrandt Weakland, who had his own problems, okay, which are public and notorious. He wrote to Rome as to what to do with this priest. And he wrote to the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. He wrote to Cardinal Ratzinger. 
that New York Times published all the correspondence on its website, and it was reproduced by the Australian newspaper on its website. I went through, I read every letter. All the correspondence to and from the Diocese of Superior and uh, Archdiocese of Milwaukee and the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. When I read the letter, all the letters, all the correspondence, I said to myself, huh? What's here? There's nothing here to implicate anybody. The New York Times says, Cardinal Ratzinger never responded to any of the letters from Archbishop Weakland. That's true. Because Cardinal Bertoni did. Cardinal Ratzinger had a delegate. He's got 10,001 jobs to do every day. His immediate undersecretary responded to every letter. When this priest, Lawrence Murphy, knew that he was going to be roasted, he panicked. Because the Archdiocese of Weakland and the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and the Diocese of Superior were intent to put this man through the canonical process to defrock him. So he wrote to Rome again, saying, look, this is over 20 years ago, I am now old, I'm getting sick, I'm about to die, uh, I haven't recommitted any sins of this nature for decades, please drop the case. Cardinal Bertoni respond, and responded to Archbishop Weakland and said, look, the language was pastoral language, I read it. You know, taking all things into account, you know, handle this case as pastorally sensitive as you can. Go read the documentation yourself. There's no wording in it from Cardinal Bertoni saying, look, forget this case, drop it. Just asking them to perhaps reconsider how you're going to proceed in the sense of whether it's worthwhile going to a full canonical process or just maybe isolate him in some safe house. Both the diocese responded to Rome by saying, no, we're going to put this man through the full canonical process. They wrote to Rome, to Cardinal Bertoni, and Rome did not respond, meaning Rome allowed it to proceed. Rome said, okay, go do it. The New York Times charged that the case was then dropped, the priest was never defrocked, and he died a priest in good standing because, because Cardinal Ratzinger ignored all the correspondence. That's all true, but that's how you want to spin it. As I said, Cardinal Ratzinger never responded to any letter because he got Cardinal Bertoni to handle the case. Yes, the case was dropped. Father Lawrence died a priest. Why? The case was dropped on August 19, 1998. It ended. August 19, 98. Father Lawrence died August 21, 98. Two days later. They dropped the case because the man was dying in bed. He couldn't even get out of bed to come to court. That's what all courts do in every jurisdiction in the world. If the man is dying and he's got a few hours or a few days to live, they don't proceed with the case. 
He dies, it's reported back to Rome, and Cardinal Botoni says, well, obviously, now the case is closed. Yes, he does die a priest. He's not defrocked. He's not defrocked because he dies before the case can really go anywhere, any further. They knew he was on his deathbed, it was just a matter of time, that's why they ended the case. They didn't end the case saying, look, we were happy with what this man did, let him go, we approve of it. That's an utter nonsense. This case is a non-starter against Pope Benedict. The only scandal with respect to Pope Benedict is that he should never have been implicated in it in the first place. Alright. Then we come up to the Kaisel case. So we have 1 March 12, 1 March 24, then we have April 9. You see, for years there's nothing against Pope Benedict. Nothing. Then suddenly all these cases come up at once. You're just wondering. They're digging. They're digging day and night to find something. Is it because they have really believe he's guilty? Or is it because they want to find a smoking gun and they search for it everywhere? The Keisler case is another example of it. The report in the Associated Press was that Future Pope stalled pedophile case. Took five years to defrock a priest for, for a charge of pedophilia. Isn't this more evidence that the Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, head of the CDF, didn't really care about these cases? Well, it's nothing of the sort. This priest, the Californian priest, Father Kaiser, Stephen Kaiser, certainly was guilty of molesting children. The pedophile case was handled by his diocese the whole time. What had happened, this priest... Now, you've got to know something here very clear. Cardinal Ratzinger had no responsibility whatsoever, personal responsibility, (coughs) to handle any pedophile case before the year 2001. Only in 2001 did the Pope say that now all pedophile priests, their cases, have to be directed to Rome. It was the Church's practice, and a proper practice under the principle of subsidiarity, that the local authority, bishop, archbishop, etc., had to deal with the pedophile cases and their diocese. That's actually what should be done in a normal, healthy situation. And that was the case up until 2001. This Kaisel case in the mid-80s. So why are they trying to implicate Cardinal Ratzinger? had no authority here at the time to deal with these cases. There was a letter sent by Father Keisel to Cardinal Ratzinger asking for laicisation to be defrocked. He didn't want to be a priest anymore. It took five years for that process to be finalised. Why the delay? This is what raises the suspicion. Well, this is what's what's the canonical process that we now know was perhaps somewhat laborious that we can get our act together and and improve upon. Kaisel wasn't raising any of the pedophile issues with Rome. The pedophile issue, or his trial for the pedophile issue, were being dealt with the whole time by his own diocese. And now finalised by his own diocese. At this time, though, Kaiser was trying to get out of it 
by trying to be defrocked. You see? This is how the irony of it. Why, is it, why doesn't the Catholic Church just, just defrock pedophile priests? Why did it take five years to defrock Kaisel? You should have defrocked him straight away. Kaisel was seeking to be defrocked as a tactic to get out of the church's canonical process. That's why the church didn't rather stamp his defrocking. But also, because after the Second Vatican Council, he had a deluge of applications to Rome by priests who wanted to leave the priesthood. In the time of Paul VI, over 30,000. This is a problem we've only just begun to recover from. Catholic priest numbers have increased by 10,000 around the world in the last 10 years, but that's, that wasn't happening in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, I assure you. When John Paul II became Pope, he was determined to deal with this critical process, this problem, and he wanted to make it more difficult for priests to be laicized, to get out of their vows. He didn't want dioceses just rubber-stamping applications from priests to leave the priesthood. Okay? So that's this process Cardinal Ratzinger was operating under, a, formal, a, a, a slower formal process. And was, he was deliberately carrying out the slower formal process because that's what the church wanted to do with all applications for defrocking or laicisation. That's all it was. Eventually, Kaiser was... Not, um, found guilty of his crimes and was kicked out of the priesthood. What, what Benedict did when he received the application from Kaisel for defrocking, he sent, not knowing that this man was being charged with, you know, well, suspect for pedophile abuse, he just sent back a form letter, a standard letter that's, you know, you pull it out of the filing cabinet. What's the letter you send back to applicants at first instance when they want to get out of the prison? Yeah, this is the form letter. Sign it here, date it and send it back to them. And so people are saying, ah, there's Pope Benedict's signature on a letter that delayed this man's laicisation. As Hitchens, the arch-atheist in Britain said, this is the Pope's permission to this man to rape boys. That's how perverted he, that's how he perverts it. And he gets media coverage, because he's, he's notorious. Okay? And this is what's getting out there in the mind of the public. How can the Pope, Ratzinger at the time, be so slow in getting rid of this pedophile? This is the whole corrupt culture of the Catholic Church. So that's how they portray it. But see, you've got to understand something here with canonical processes. No matter how heinous the charges are, the accused does have a right still in every legal jurisdiction inside and outside the church, at least in countries that have due process, to a uh, presumption of innocence and guilty until pro- sorry, innocent until proven guilty. And that same process or procedure Apply, surprise, surprise, even in the Catholic Church. People have a right to a fair trial, a presumption of innocence, and are innocent until proven guilty. And trials take a long time. As much as we like them to be done over and done with briefly, they often take a long trial, a time. Alright. 
So that puts you in the picture of what we got here with these three cases that came up recently. Hardly, you know, smoking guns in the, in the hands of a sympathiser of pedophilia, namely Pope Benedict. Hardly. The atheist legal threats. This has become, we enter the comical stage now. With all this coming out, people are going to get on the bandwagon to further their agenda. I already spoke to you of the dissenting Catholic agenda here. Atheists are exploiting this for their own purposes. Christopher Hitchens, in, on March 29, writing an article in the, for a publication called The Slate, hinted that the Pope, when he comes to Britain in September, should be arrested. Arrested for war crimes, because he's the head of an organisation that has systematically abused children throughout the world. He said, the secular authorities have been feeble for too long, but now some lawyers and prosecutors are starting to bestir themselves. They'll have no problem if he wants to go after real pedophiles anywhere in the church. But where's the evidence that Pope Benedict, one, is a pedophile, two, sympathise with pedophiles, three, covered up and dig for pedophiles? There's none whatsoever. He goes on to say, I know some serious men of law who are discussing what to do if Benedict tries to make his proposed visit to Britain in the fall. It's enough. There has to be a reckoning, and it should start now. Three days later, The Guardian, no friend of conservatives, The Guardian, published an opinion piece by Geoffrey Robertson, a barrister and UN appeal judge, implying that the Pope should be tried for crimes against humanity. He likened Pope Benedict to the genocidal Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir and suggested that he too might be indicted by the International Criminal Court. Now let me say this, Hitchens is going along on this bandwagon. We should arrest Pope Benedict and bring him before the International Criminal Court. Let me tell you something about the International Criminal Court. It was set up to deal with war crimes, not other types of crimes. Hitchens supported overtly and everywhere the invasion of Iraq, which by any standard was an illegal war. If you want to go by the United Nations, you want to use the United Nations staff member to get after Pope Benedict? Well, the United Nations said, Christopher Hitchens, that the war, the invasion of Iraq was illegal. You supported an illegal war. You supported a war that has caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. If anyone should be brought before the International Criminal Court for war crimes, it's you for supporting an illegal war. That would be my response to him. On April 11, the Sunday Times reported that Richard Dawkins was planning a legal ambush for the Pope in September. The article disclosed that Dawkins and Hitchens had commissioned Geoffrey Robinson and Mark Stevens, a solicitor at the London law firm Finnis Stevens Innocent, to present a justification for legal action. So we must destroy this organisation, guilty of inquisition with an inquisition of our own. That's, exactly, that's what we're facing here. Dawkins would say, I am especially intrigued by the proposed challenge to the legality of the Vatican as a sovereign state whose head can claim diplomatic immunity. Well, 
How many hundred odd nations have ambassadors to the Holy See and vice versa? All these countries have just not realised that the Vatican has never been a state for them at all. That treaty with the Italian state in 1929, what was that? The Italians conceded the Vatican as a separate independent state. It's called religious freedom. Okay. Now we've got some two-bit lawyers who are now trying to tell the whole world, look, you got it wrong, guys, the Vatican's never a state because the United Nations doesn't recognise it as a state. The Vatican only has the status of an NGO at the Vatican, so at the United Nations, therefore it's not a state. But do we need to have the United Nations to recognise a state as a state? There were plenty of states in existence and recognised as such before the United Nations. The United States didn't become a state only when it was recognised by the United Nations in 1945. The Vatican existed before the United Nations. It doesn't need the United Nations to bring it into existence as a state. This is the profound legal advice that we're dealing with. Dawkins clarified that the intention was not, in fact, to arrest the Pope. Now, we're only kidding. We really don't want to go that far. But to use the law to turn public opinion against the papal visit. We don't have to come. The British government then is free to withdraw the invitation. And at the Pope comes, you don't have to go, Richard. Stay at home. Read your books on evolution. That's fine. Bring out more scholarly works like the God Delusion. Use your St Mary's College at Oxford to continue to attack religion for its evil contributions to the world while you live at St Mary's College at Oxford. He said, even if the Pope doesn't end up in the dock and even if the Vatican doesn't cancel the visit, I am optimistic that we shall raise public consciousness to the point where the British government will find it very awkward indeed to go ahead with the Pope's visit, let alone pay for it. Well, the British government has changed. Maybe not to something great, but something a little bit better. The British Labour Party said, quote, we don't do God. Last week, God. We don't do British Labour. You're not in power anymore. You've got no say in this question. Christopher Hitchens on April 12 continued to heap insults on the Pope. If Benedict gets away with it, he said, then he gets away with it. And the faithful can be proud of their supreme leader. But this we can promise. Now that his own signature has been found on Father Keisel's permission to rape, doesn't he presume ahead of a formal legal procedure? There will be only one subject of conversation until Ratzinger, who he calls potent, no, no, that's sorry, that was hit, Dawkins called him potent Nazi. Another scholarly comment. Um, <clears throat> one subject of conversation until Ratzinger calls off his visit. And only one subject if he decides to try to go through with it. In either event, he will be remembered for only one thing long after he is dead. And what's that? I tell you what Pope Benedict will be remembered for long after he's dead. Enduring unjust slander and attacks like Christ did. That's what he'll be remembered for. Commentators greeted the disclosure that Dawkins and Hitchens 
were the source of the legal threat to the Pope with widespread and justified derision. David Blackburn of The Spectator said Dawkins' challenge verged on, quote, the pathologically absurd. Meanwhile, Neil Addison, a lawyer and national director of the Thomas More Legal Centre, described Geoffrey Robinson's legal argument as, quote, rubbish. And he goes on to say, quote, the legal status of the Vatican as an independent state may be regarded by some as ridiculous, and it can be described as anomalous, but it is nevertheless a legal fact, and it is frankly fatuous for a lawyer to suggest otherwise. He said, adding, when a lawyer writes an article or blog and invokes the law, then people are entitled to assume that they are quoting the law accurately, not just engaging in personal prejudice, polemic, masquerading as legal fact. It's very good we've got intelligent commentators in the public realm still. Next question. Is the Catholic Church worse than any other institution, church, denomination, religion when it comes to pedophilia? I've got two sources here, very interesting statistics. Because again, to repeat what I said earlier, if you listen and watch the media, you really get the impression this is a Catholic problem. Sexually disordered priests, and it's all got to do with celibacy. Living this medieval lifestyle, they've never read 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, by the way. Living this medieval lifestyle of being celibate, etc. This is, this is a Catholic problem only. Well, let's look at some interesting statistics. Since the mid-1980s, insurance companies have offered sexual misconduct coverage as a rider on liability insurance. And their own studies indicate that Catholic churches are not higher risk than any other congregations. Insurance companies that cover all denominations, such as Guide One Center for Risk Management, which has more than 40,000 church clients in the United States, does not charge Catholic churches higher premiums. Quote, we don't see vast difference in the incidence rate between one denomination and another, says Sarah Buckley, Assistant Vice President of Corporate Communications. Quote, it's pretty even across the denominations. It's been that way for decades. While the company saw an uptick in these claims by all types of churches around the time of the 2002 US Catholic sex abuse scandal, Eric Spasiak, Guide One Senior Church Risk Manager, says, quote, it's been pretty steady since. The only hard data that has been made public by any denomination comes from John Jay College's study of Catholic priests, which was authorised and is being paid for by the US Conference of Catholic Bishops following the public outcry over the 2002 scandals. And that's what I mentioned earlier. And this is where the Catholic Church is now a world leader, or at least in the United States, in trying to clean up its own act. Where are the other statistics that are reliable coming out of other denominations? In other words, there's still perhaps a few laps behind in that old process that the Catholic Church had of trying to keep these things in-house. Don't air your dirty laundry. We decided, at least in America, to air our dirty laundry, as unfortunate as that may be. 
limiting their study to plausible accusations made between 1950 and 1992, John Jay researchers reported that about 4% of the 110,000 Catholic priests active during those years had been accused of sexual misconduct involving children. Keep that figure 4%. That's 4% too many. Okay? But it's 4%. So basically, if 1% is 1,100, that's about 4,500 priests in those 42 years out of 110,000 were guilty of some form of sexual abuse or another. It's 4,500 too many. Specifically, 4,392 complaints ranging from sexual talk to rape were made against priests by 10,667 victims. And you're safe to say that may be the tip of the iceberg and there's probably a lot more. But you've got to use that same argument or statement to all agencies, denominations, churches, religions, schools, etc. in the United States. No matter what is reported, it's usually only part of the problem. Reports made after 2002, including those of incidents that occurred years earlier, are released as part of the church's annual audits. Experts disagree on the rate of sexual abuse among the general American male population. But Allen says a conservative estimate is 1 in 10. Catholic Church, 4 in 100. In America, it's about 1 in 10 males. Margaret Leland Smith, a researcher at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, says her review of the numbers indicates it's closer to 1 in 5. So, let's, let's be a bit more conservative here. One in ten American males are guilty of some form of sexual abuse. Catholic priesthood is four and four percent, not ten percent. It should be a lot less than four percent. It should be zero percent. I want to repeat that again and again and again. But it's not just a Catholic problem. But in either case, the rate of abuse by Catholic priests is not higher, but lower than these national averages. The public also doesn't realise how profoundly prevalent child sexual abuse is, adds Smith. Even those numbers may be low. Research suggests that only a third of abuse cases are ever reported, making it the most unreported crime in America. Quote, however you slice it, it's a very common experience, Smith says. More statistics are coming. Is there a link between celibacy and pedophilia? There's so many people out there saying, ad nauseum. Let priests marry and they won't be pedophiles. To say the least, that is an incredibly amateurish assessment. Look at that case last night. That minister was married with children. Did that stop him committing in our eyes, sexual sin. No, it didn't. I watched a feature on Hillsong last week on Channel 7, that program Sunday evening. Pastor, uh, the chief pastor of Hillsong, I forget his name at the moment, well known, yeah, Houston, said the greatest crisis in his life around the year 2000 occurred when he found out that his father, a Salvation Army, pastor, married with children, was a pedophile. 
who had abused at least two children. So just those two cases would tell you, sadly, being married is not a cure for sexual problems. Don't we know it? That's why the church looks at the sacrament. The marriage is not just married with holy matrimony, it's sacrament. Because when God calls you to that state, he's giving you the grace to live it. But it's not an instant cure for temptation. Let's go on here. Dr. Manfred Lutz, a psychiatrist, author and organiser of the 2003 Vatican Congress on the abuse of children, quote, said this, I do not think that the Vatican is trying to prevent any debate about celibacy. Catholics are free to talk about it. Celibacy is no dogma. But I think when we have a discussion about abuse, then this is not the moment to discuss celibacy because then we make the same strategies as the offenders do. That is, the same excuses. The offenders always say, we're not, guilt- we're not the guilty ones. Society is guilty. The church is guilty. Celibacy is the problem, not us. And I do not want to be an accomplice to such escape strategies. Dr. Lutz dismisses any suggestion of a scientific correlation between celibacy and abuse. The father of a family, he says, listen to this, is 36 times more likely to abuse than a celibate priest. So it is not good to discuss celibacy in this context. He goes on to say, I know many think that reforming celibacy rules would be a modernisation. But what is modernising, he asks. Quote, the Protestant church doesn't have celibacy and the number of people leaving their clergy is higher than ours. And look, listen to these statistics from Sam Miller, a prominent Cleveland Jewish businessman. And you can look this up on, on the web. An article written April 8, 2010. Proud to be Catholics. This is by a Jewish man. Quote, Let me give you some figures that Catholics should know and remember. For example, 12% of the 300 Protestant clergy surveyed, now you can go to his article and read these surveys, admitted to sexual intercourse with a parishioner. 38% acknowledged other inappropriate sexual contact in a study by the United Methodist Church. 41.8% of clergy, clergy women reported unwanted sexual behaviour. 17% of laywomen have been sexually harassed. Meanwhile, 1.7% of the Catholic Church clergy has been found guilty of pedophilia. 10% now, I don't know how accurate this statistic is, and I really want it verified, but he says 10% of Protestant ministers have been found guilty of pedophilia. This is not a Catholic problem. Now, what about the norms which, however, recommended secrecy? Wasn't that from 1962? You have this all the time. No. The first edition of this work dates back to the pontificate of Pius XI in 1922. Then with, the, with John XXIII, the Holy Office issued a new edition for the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. These are procedural norms to be followed in cases of solicitation during confession. What happens when priests abuse the sacrament of confession to solicit 
sexual activity. And of other more serious sexually motivated crimes such as the sexual abuse of minors. A poor English translation of the text has led people to think that the Holy See imposed secrecy in order to hide the facts, but this was not so. Secrecy during the investigative stage served to protect the good name of all the people involved. First and foremost, the victims themselves, then the accused priests who have the right, as everyone does, to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. The Church does not like showcase justice. Norms on sexual abuse have never been understood as a ban on denouncing the crimes to the civil authorities. You can look up the Vatican guidelines on how to deal with sexual abuse cases that were released on April 12 of this year. Now, I say release, it should be re-released. The Church has had these guidelines for about a decade, 2001. But the Vatican reissued them in simpler point form for the lay people to read and understand. I'll go through them with you, then I'll conclude with what Pope Benedict personally has done in recent years to tackle this crisis. With a 14-paragraph guideline, the Vatican is seeking to clarify the procedures it follows when a priest is accused of sexual abuse. Again, these are not new norms, they're just released to the public to for our knowledge. A report from Vatican Radio explained that the guide is not a new document but simply a summary of procedures that have already been defined. To quote, it can be an aid for lay people and those who are not canon lawyers, like us. In the midst of the allegations from the media that the Church has sought to cover up these scandals, the document affirms clearly, quote, civil law concerning reporting of crimes to the appropriate authorities should always be followed. This has been in place now for 10 years. It also clarifies, quote, should the cleric be judged guilty, both judicial and administrative penal processes can condemn a cleric to a number of canonical penalties, the most serious of which is dismissal from the clerical state. The document further notes, when cases are referred to the Holy Father, that is the Pope, in every grave case where a civil criminal trial has found the cleric guilty of sexual abuse of minors or where the evidence is overwhelming, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith may choose to take the case directly to the Holy Father with the request that the Pope issue a decree of ex officio dismissal from the clerical state. There is no canonical remedy against such a papal decree. In other words, it's final. And to finish off, or to round up, what has Pope Benedict done to address the issue? I mean, he's been the subject of the attacks, personally. Are there more to come? I don't know. The cases are proceeding in the United States. It'll be interesting to see where they end up. If the, these courts in the United States say that the Pope can be implicated and called to give evidence in trial. I'll be very interested to see how they're going to get him to come to court in the United States. It's going to be almost farcical, of course, but the media will beat it up to show that the Pope refuses to come to court because he's hiding something. You can expect that. Whether it gets to that, we'll wait and see. In recent years, though, no other similar situated institution 
has been so transparent about its failures. Yes, and at times it's been, it's been dragged, cricket, kicking and screaming. Every organisation, denomination, religion in the world has acted no differently. And none has done as much to clean house. It took too long to get there, to be sure, but we are getting there. And then this is where you do have to thank to me the, the media to a significant extent, because it's forced us to accelerate this process. But I don't give them any benefit of the doubt when it comes to Pope Benedict. There is much evidence for Pope Benedict's determination to root out what he once described as the filth in the church. There was, for example, his March 20 letter to the Catholic Church in Ireland, which was unsparing in its condemnation of clerical secular offenders, to quote, You betrayed the trust that was placed in you by innocent young people and their parents, and you must answer for it before Almighty God and before properly constituted tribunals. That's the most the Pope can do. The Pope can't personally go to Ireland and drag these offenders into papal courts in Rome. You have to admonish the local bishops and archbishops to get their act together and do it themselves in their diocese. As the un- and the unprecedented critique of malfeasant bishops by Pope Benedict, quote, grave errors of judgment were made and failures of leadership occurred, which have undermined your credibility and effectiveness. Moreover, the Pope mandated an apostolic visitation to all Irish dioceses, seminaries and religious congregations, a clear indication of dramatic leadership changes in Ireland is coming. When, the, when Rome sent what's called an apostolic visitor to a particular place, that's because it's recognised that that religious order congregation or here, the whole church in Ireland, has basically collapsed in its own self-government. And it needs to... It's inter, this is an extraordinary intervention that's going to result in a lot of upheaval. Now, we've seen that with the legionaries of Christ, and I'll get to that in a minute, right now, actually. Then there was the March 25 letter from the leadership of the legionary to the leadership of the legionaries of Christ, and seminarians and their uh, affiliated movement Regnum Christi. Now, the allegations against Father Marcel Marcel took years to come out and people were shocked and outraged and angry and uh, depressed when this all came out, but eventually it was all proven to be true. And as a consequence, uh, Rome sent an apostolic visitor to investigate the whole issue and interview hundreds of people belonging to these movements. And then just a a week or so ago, or a couple of weeks ago, the Pope issued instructions to the legionaries of Christ as to how to move forward. And basically it was to disown their founder as as any form of model to be imitated. And other things, we'll have a look right now. The letter disavowed the legion's founder, Father Marcel Marcel, as a model for the future, in light of revelations that Marcio had deceived popes, bishops, laity and his brother legionaries by living a duplicitous double life that included fathering several children, sexually abusing seminarians, violating the sacrament of penance and misappropriating funds. It's staggering what he pulled off. Pope Benedict had the, the courage and the quick action to 
asked this man to remove himself from his position and he was put away in isolation to do prayer and penance until the day he died. Um, I guarantee you, it was very hard for many people. I know one priest here in Sydney who was sure that these attacks against Marcel were directed by you know, dissenters who hated what the legionaries stood for. And that's my initial presumption as well. But he began to change his mind when an ex-seminarian of a legionaries who was dying of cancer in his last days, um, officials investigating these allegations came to his deathbed and asked him if he was prepared to repeat his allegations. And when you're about to die and face Christ in personal judgment and you take your faith seriously, I don't think you're going to be continuing in culpable and malicious lying at that point. And he repeated all the allegations again and again that he, as a seminarian, had been raped by this man. And when this priest here in Sydney was aware of that, he began to think, well, maybe something serious is going wrong here. And we found out soon enough that that was the case. It was Pope Benedict who put Marcel under virtual ecclesiastical house arrest during his last years and who then ordered an apostolic visitation of the Legion of Christ that has recently concluded. These are hardly the acts of a man at the centre of a conspiracy of silence and cover-up. He was also the first Pope to ever meet victims of abuse, which he did in the United States and Australia in 2008. He spoke openly about the crisis some five times during his 2008 visit to the United States. And he became the first Pope to devote an entire document to the sexual abuse crisis, his pastoral letter to Ireland. Archbishop Vincent Nichols of Westminster in England suggested that Pope Benedict was, quote, the one above all else in Rome that has tackled this thing head on. Writing in the Times, he said, quote, when he was in charge of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he led important changes made in church law. The inclusion in canon law of internet offences against children, the extension of child abuse offences to include the sexual abuse of all under 18, the case-by-case waiving of the statute of limitations. That means there's no no limit on on anybody anymore on bringing cases. There used to be a limit of 10 years. But now, if you were abused 30, 40 years ago, you can still bring cases now against the perpetrators. This statute of limitations was removed by Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, And the establishment of a fast-track dismissal from the clerical state for offenders. He is not an idle observer. His actions speak as well as his words. And on that note, I formally conclude this talk tonight. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.